The following is with someone whose work I aspire to emulate. His name is Brian Class. He is a professor in global politics. He's the author of several books. He's the host of a really good podcast. And he's also the creator of a huge substack. So in several of these mediums, he has climbed to the top of the distribution, which I hope to one day join him. And that is in pursuing a life that is just a reflection of one's own interests. Brian's writing books, recording podcasts, and authoring a huge newsletter, all off the back of his own interests. It is an extremely, extremely cool thing to witness from afar. But I was very lucky for this episode. We recorded it in person. Brian and I sat down together in his Winchester kitchen, and we spoke about randomness, chance, Nassim Taleb, flukes, and why all of these things are worth thinking about. If you like Taleb, then Brian's new book, Fluke, which just came out, is right up your alley. Brian's research is wonderful. You're knocked over the head again and again with these truly unbelievable stories of chance, which reinforces, and I hope I'm not being too hyperbolic here, but just how magnificent life is and also hopefully unlocks an aspiration for how magnificent life can be. Sorry if you're rolling your eyes there, um, but I don't think it's too much to say that that is actually what the book sets out to achieve and then largely um, achieves it in spades as well. Before we get into it, refer to the timestamps to navigate around, pump that good juice into the algorithm, five stars on Apple, five stars on Spotify, tell a friend, spread the good word, and with absolutely no further ado, here is the great Brian Klaas. Soren Kierkegaard, life can be understood backwards but it must be lived forwards. This is true. <laughs> I mean, I think this is something where, um, you know, when we think about that the way that the world works, um, we can only control so much. And when we think about the pathways of our lives and how they sort of end up where we are at now, um, you know, we look backwards and we can see lots of pivot points. What we can't see are, are what I call invisible pivot points. And those are the things that shaped our lives that we're completely unaware of. And that's most of... I think what creates our, our present, our future, et cetera, are a series of very small changes that add up to very profound consequences. Invisible pivot points. So fluke is about making sense of the random walk, uh, forks in the road, impossible to predict. What are these invisible pivot points that you've personally experienced to get to where you are now? Yeah, so I mean, there's a few that I talk about in Fluke, uh, some more indirect than others. The, the one that I, I often tell people is this story from 1905 in Wisconsin, um, where a, a woman decided to, uh, well, she didn't decide to, but she snapped. She had a mental breakdown and she murdered her four children. Uh, and the oldest, I think, was five years old, really young kids. And then she killed herself. And the reason I mention this is because it's my great-grandfather's first wife. And uh, he came home and discovered his whole family dead in this farmhouse in Wisconsin in 1905. And I didn't know about this until I was in my mid-20s. And the reason this is important, obviously, for me is because my great-grandfather remarried to my great-grandmother. And I'm the descendant of the aftermath of that mass murder. And so, you know, one of the things that struck me about that, okay, first, there's this weird thing that happens where, you know, all these factors that are, you know, going to create this endless trajectory of history creating the present uh, do add up. But there's also this moment for me where I was like, for the first 20 odd years of my life, I was totally unaware 
that my existence was predicated on this moment 119 years ago, right? This pivotal moment for me. And I think that's the stuff where, you know, when I talk to people about fluke, they always say, you know, they relate to it because they say something like, oh, yeah, like I could have gone to a different college or I could have done something else and not met my spouse and so on. The point I make is there's so many things you don't know that diverted your trajectory. And I, I, that's the way I struggle to answer that question a little bit because it's the one where I think the honest answer is I literally don't know mm. what caused these diversions. There's lots of big choices I've made. I moved to England, you know, 13 years ago, and I didn't know I would still be here, you know, 13 years later. But it is the kind of stuff where I think, um, you know, you, you do end up having an appreciation for the unbroken thread of causality that does ultimately uh, create your your pathway through life you were just telling me about how your um, podcast was actually done off your own initiative to your own sunk cost for the hope that it would then get a book deal and now here you are i mean writing fluke that's another thing that wouldn't have happened had you not taken the risk with uh corruptible power corrupts yeah, you know, th- so this is one of those things where it's not even, it wasn't even with an intention, right? I mean, <laughs> I basically what happened was I was I was sort of bored with some of the things that I was working on professionally. I had a little bit of extra time. I thought, oh, maybe I'll make a podcast, right? And I made, I decided to, I thought I'd make like four or five episodes, just like sort of a, a novelty project. And it happened to go better than I expected. Uh, I talked to a person uh, who, who worked with podcasting it didn't pan out on the podcast what he was hoping to hook me up with and so on. But then he connected me to a book agent that, you know, ended up in a book deal. I, there's lots of stuff. I think whenever I talk to someone uh, about fluke, they can see these moments, right? Like they, they think about the alternative pathways. But the problem is, you know, there's only one world. So, you know, the, the, the really odd thing about this is maybe there's a much better version of my life in which I didn't make the podcast, right? I think it's very good, but maybe it's even better if I didn't. And and that's the thing that's so bewildering. It's like, you know, you start to think about questions of historical causality, for example. And in, in, in Fluke, I talk about this thought experiment involving, you know, would you, if you could travel back in time, would you kill baby Hitler, right? And the question on its face is like a straightforward question about morality, right? Would you kill a baby in order to save millions of people later on? But what it's really a question about is historical causality. Because the question about if you eliminated Hitler from the story of history, does that mean Nazi Germany doesn't happen, right? And like, we don't know. And there's this, there's this very disturbing but plausible um, you know, uh, novel by Stephen Fry where he imagines something similar. He says, you know, you imagine that you travel back in time and, and Hitler's dad uh, becomes infertile, right? So Hitler's never born. But in his version of events, it's actually worse because the person who ends up in charge of what then is basically Nazi Germany is far more disciplined and less erratic than Hitler. The, the Germans get the atomic bomb before the Americans and they win the war, right? Now, obviously, we don't know if that would happen, but it's not impossible. And I think that's the stuff where we have this assumption that when good outcomes occur, it's always for the best. And when bad outcomes occur, it's always for the worst. I mean, I am the byproduct of a mass murder. So every good thing in my life has been derived from that. It couldn't have been otherwise. And so, you know, I, I think there's this aspect of when we think about why things happen, um, we have a simplistic narrative we tend to retroactively apply to the past. And, and the real answer of what reality is, is unknowable. And I think that's the thing that truly boggles my mind as I was writing this book and, and talking about it. Does it give you more empathy for those struggling? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I realized, and this is towards the end of the book, is I, I personally don't believe in free will. I think there's growing scientific evidence to lead us to that conclusion. Um, but even aside from that, right, there is an infinite number of things that I cannot control that have shaped who I am. I didn't control who my parents were. I didn't control when I was born. I didn't control where I was born. I mean, the lottery of birth, even just that, let's just focus on the geography, right? If the exact same me was born in a country that I spent a lot of time in, Madagascar, my life chances would be severely curtailed, right? The average person there lives on $1.80 a day or so, and 40% of the country has electricity. So if I'm born in rural Madagascar, where, you know, starvation is a constant threat, there's no electricity, I could be, you know, the exact same person. I don't think I would end up here, you know, uh, sitting and talking to you. So when you start to have an appreciation for that, it's not to say that there's no agency in life or anything like that, but it is to say that we have these these sort of layers that you know do divert our trajectories that we're unaware of or take for granted. And so, yes, I mean, I think that I have much more empathy uh, having thought about these concepts because it it makes me think, you know, when I when I see someone who's behaving really, like there was there was an example of this. Um, that I found really jarring how I was interpreting the world differently from other people, where there was this horrific, horrific shooting that happened in the United States where this young man uh, targeted gay people. And they went to his dad's house and they they interviewed him. And uh, the dad said something horrific. He said, you know, oh, thank goodness he was the shooter. I was worried that he was gay, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it's just, it, this went viral on social media because it's just so atrocious, this viewpoint. And what I thought, my first reaction was like, what a sad story that this person has ended up in this position, right? Like society has failed this person. I'm sure, you know, I, I, I would judge them. I would judge them the same as anyone else in the sense like that you can't say that. It's unacceptable. But I also think like that person's life has been such a social failure to get to the point where the education levels, the the outlook, the upbringing, probably abuse, all that type of stuff, you know, much of, and I don't know in this specific case, so I'm inferring a lot of this, but very often it's the case that, that people who do horrible things have these life histories that are horrible themselves, right? And I don't. So I, I, I tend to think like, you know, I'm very lucky that I ended up in the place that I did. And of course, I've tried to make the most of that luck and so on, which, you know, uh, has has panned out in, in various ways. But I do think that it's important to understand those hidden background factors that affect our trajectories in life. Yeah. There was another example in the book of a mass shooting of this person who had something wrong with their brain. Yeah, so this is a story of uh, it's this horrible, it's one of the earliest, you know, famous mass shootings because they've obviously become much more common these days in the U.S., but... Uh, this is this is at the University of Texas, and you know this this guy basically started hearing voices in his head that told him to kill people, and he was resisting this. Like he was aware that he didn't want to do this, but he he had this really strong impulse, and so he ends up killing uh, two family members. I think it's actually his his wife and his mom, and uh, then goes to the clock tower at the University of Texas and guns down a whole bunch of people. But before he does this, he leaves this note where he says basically like, look. Could you please, like, I'm going to die because he, he knew he was going to die. He says, could you please do a, a, you know, an autopsy of my brain afterwards because I don't know why this is happening, but, you know, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. Like a self-awareness of something going wrong in his head. And sure enough, they do an autopsy and there's a, there's a tumor. 
And the amygdala, which regulates emotion uh, in the brain, is, is basically being pressed upon by this tumor, and it's, it's making it all out of whack. Now, if I told you the story without the amygdala, without the, the sort of aspects of the brain tumor and so on, then it's just like, okay, gosh, this is a terrible, evil person, right? The second that the brain tumor comes into play, people start to say, oh, well, he couldn't help it. And the, 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 the puzzle that I pose in Fluke is I say, why is healthy brain tissue, which is just to say brain tissue that follows the, the bell curve of standard distribution models of what a normal human has, why is that... Why do we say that healthy brain tissue equals choice, but unhealthy brain tissue doesn't? And the reason I, I pose that question is because I can't control my brain tissue. If I want to stop my brain from chemically reacting the way it does, I can't. So, you know, he couldn't either. And I think there's something there where you have to think, you know, a lot of, a lot of neuroscience is grappling with these questions. And I suspect it will be one of the great philosophical debates of the 21st century is as we understand the mechanics of the brain much better, um, I think there's going to be an increasing belief that the level of control we have of top-down processing from what we call mind to brain is going to be relatively limited. And that, that creates real philosophical problems. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that brings up the question of agency. You know, if you now having written this book, absorb this worldview completely, having said what you just said, do you feel like you have more or less agency? So I, it's, it's, it's funny because like I did realize in the writing of this book that I don't believe in free will, which is a rather <laughs> profound revelation, right? It's like, I mean, I, I've often said to people, this is the only book I've ever written. It's the only professional research I've ever done that changed the way I see the world. I mean, everything else was oh, sort of incredible. broadcast. No, it, it was, this is, it's been the highlight of my professional life by far. Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, and it's because it's just like I, I thought differently about the world while I was researching and writing the book. Now, one of the areas was free will, um, and this created a strange, you know, sort of question where people say, like, "Oh, have you like lost a sense of purpose or whatever?" And I think the the free will question to me is, to an extent, it's a question about the origin of causes, right? Like, am I independently from my physical body causing my actions, or is my physical body causing my actions? I think the latter. I think my I think that the series of chemical reactions in my body are causing me to behave the way I do. Which is to say, you know, succinctly, that I don't think there's a difference between the mind and the brain. I think they're the exact same thing, right? Now, this thing raises the question, oh, do you have less agency? No, I think I have exactly the same amount. I just think that the origin story of my behavior is not written mm. by some disembodied soul. Mm. I think it's written by my chemical brain, right? And the physical rest of my experience. Exactly. There's a physical basis to my behavior. Now, what I think is really interesting about this is it does give you a question, I, I, and I will say this explicitly, where I believe there is no cosmic purpose to my life. I don't mean that in some dystopian nihilistic way, right? I just think that like when I was writing about Fluke, there's a great example in the book where, you know, one of the reasons why mammals uh, evolved in the way that they do with live births is because this single shrew-like creature got infected with a retrovirus 100 million years ago. Right. And this uh, this gives rise to placenta, which gives rise to live births. And, you know, it's why humans are not part of the kind of creatures that lay eggs and so on. Now, that is totally arbitrary and random. And so I sort of think that like humanity is a, basically an evolutionary accident. That means I am, too. Right. But but the cool thing about that is like how unbelievably lucky that I'm alive and I have consciousness like, you know, I think we have advanced consciousness in a way that most creatures don't. Um, and so. To me, like I derive meaning from from a sense that like I get to be part of this unbroken history of thirteen point eight plus billion years 
uh, of the universe, I get to affect the future. I think that one of the things that, you know, is very strong viewpoint I hold, which comes through in the book, is that all of our actions have consequences that reshape the future. So, you know, and I get to spend so much time on the planet, you know, interacting with cool people and doing cool things and enjoying the experience of life and so on. And for me, that's enough, right? And I think there's a lot of people who like, when they get, you know, confront the idea that maybe there's no cosmic purpose to life, you find it really dystopian mm, and so on. Mm. I, I say, I don't know, like I, I enjoy the, I enjoy existence. I enjoy being part of this bizarre thing, even if I can't totally divert the trajectory because I'm this physical being and so on. To me, that's enough. And so I don't feel a loss of agency. I still act exactly the same way. I mean, I, I just have more of an appreciation, I think, for the uncertainty and sort of majesty of of life and, and existence. So it sounds like in the face of coming to grips that there is no cosmic purpose, rather than turning nihilistic, nothing I do matters anyway, it in fact gave you the opposite where you feel like what I do actually can make a difference is either important or if nothing else just interesting and maybe just doing something interesting is a life well lived yeah and I, you know i think the the analogy that i try to use i use you know various motifs and fluke and like one of them is this thread in the tapestry right where i say like you know if you pull you can imagine your life as a thread as part of a you know a tapestry of eight billion threads eight billion people uh, and if you're actually being accurate, it'd be trillions because it's all the organisms and matter and all that stuff in the universe, et cetera. But whatever, let's start with the humans. So, you know, we like to think, okay, you can just pull one thread and it'll be fine. Actually, if you pull one thread out, the tapestry image changes slightly. And we don't know how much it changes, right? But I mean, I can tell you that the world would be different, in my opinion, if the thread of Donald Trump had been pulled out, right? Or if the thread of Hillary Clinton had been pulled out. There would be a different world. I mean, so some people might have more short-term impact than others, but every thread is important in making the image of the tapestry. Now, the, the thing that's odd about this is that it means that all of our actions are important. And I, you know, like the, the last third of the subtitle is why everything we do matters. And I, I worried that people would think this was some like BS self-help, you know, <laughs> thing. I, I mean it literally. I, I like, I, I'm not trying to shy away from it. I mean that every, I think the word I choose right now is important. I think that every action, the snooze button, whether I hit it in the morning matters in the trajectory of my life and in the future of, of the world in some way. And I don't know what way that will be, but you know, the clearest example of this, the highest level of contingency that can exist, I think, is, you know, without going into graphic detail, the, the, the moment a baby is conceived, right? Uh, <laughs> if this is- the graphic detail. <laughs> yeah, so, so but, if, but if it's a microsecond difference, right? Like, I mean, I mean, a trillionth of a second difference, a different human is born. And so when you think about, okay, that makes sense. Now, okay, let's imagine that, that that day, that exact day unfolds slightly differently, right? You stop to take a sip of coffee when you weren't going to. Now, a different person is born, right? How crazy is that? Yeah, but it's true, right? Now, but the, the really wild thing, and this is the thing that I think is, is amazing, is it's not just that day. Because for that exact instant to happen exactly as it did, Everything had to be that way. I mean, like literally everything, right? Like, like you know, chimpanzee-like creatures mating seven million years ago. The exact ones had to have, you know, had to mate at exactly the right time for human evolution to occur in exactly the way it did, for you to be in existence, for you to arrive at the moment of conception in exactly that instant. And so, you know, if you think that way, it's like, okay, well, hold on. Is this different for other things? No, it's not like there's something special about making babies. It's just that it's it's a very visible illustration of this point. And so, 
you know, the other the other way I describe it to people that I think makes intuitive sense, because I did struggle to sort of convey, you know, I say to people, oh, everything is important. And they say, well, not some things surely aren't, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, like everything. <laughs> and I say, okay, like, you know, there's all these things, fiction, movies, et cetera, that grapple with time travel. And like, we intuitively accept this idea that if you travel back in time and you change something about the past, even, you know, squishing a bug or talking to someone, uh, you can change the future, right? And there's the, all these sort of fiction tropes where it's like you might talk to someone who knows your parents and write yourself out of the, the out of out of existence. The world doesn't have two forms of causality, right? So if that is true in the past, that is also true in the present, and that means that squishing a bug now will have some ripple effects. Now they might not be important ones that we can sense in the you know 50, 80, 90 years that we grace the planet. But maybe in a million years, this is giving rise to a different track in evolution. And we don't know, right? And I think this is the stuff where um, I find this so unbelievably uplifting. Because I think part of the malaise of modern society is tied to a feeling of interchangeability and sort of uh, disposability, right? Like AI is going to put this on steroids. You know, I, I you talk to people who like work in an Amazon warehouse. And what they say is like, yeah, like, I mean, I feel like a robot, right? right? A robot Meaningless. that's like, yeah. And I think that's the the antidote to that is not to constantly try to say, oh, you know, actually, if you had a high status job, everything would be better. It's instead to say, like, look, you know, I I, I can totally sympathize that you're not enjoying your day to day life, which you should probably change, but uh, or try to change. But it, it is something where the flip side of it is that everything that that person is doing is shape, is shaping the future in some way, and. You know, that to me is so uplifting. So a lot of people, they look at a book that's about randomness or chance and they find nihilism. Uh, I'm trying to make a very strong case that the opposite is true, that this gives us new meaning that's different from what we tend to, uh, you know, think about with the world, but that it's it's a kind of meaning that is very, very worthwhile. Yeah. It's such a call to action. In the face of this impossible randomness is in fact the call to adventure, really like the... Um, the opportunity of a lifetime. Are you familiar with Nassim Taleb's blindfold uh, metaphor? No, I don't remember this one, no. Okay. I've read lots of his work, but I can't remember the blindfold. So this this comes from either Black Swan or Fool by Randomness, and he uh, responds to this question. Okay, so everything's random. Should I just stay at home and does my life mean nothing? No. Imagine you're crossing the road. You're standing with a bunch of people. Everyone's got a blindfold on. Some and you just cross the road. Some people will be taken out by the traffic. One lucky person will make it to the other side and they'll say to the rest, this is how I did it. It was sheer luck that got them to the other side. Remove your blindfold to the world. Accept that there is impossible randomness at play here. Try and dodge the traffic on your own. You still might not make it to the other side, but you've at least embraced the randomness rather than pretended like it didn't exist. Yeah, so this is, there, there's, you know, I often get asked, um, how will you live your life, you know, knowing that everything that you do is important and whether you hit the snooze button will change your trajectory in life and so on. And, it, you know, it might have a big effect. It might have a small effect. You can't always tell. The The answer, I think, is that you still just sort of behave as best you can according to your own ethics and your beliefs about the world, right? And the reason why you do that is because you, you don't want to internalize the lesson. Like, for, for me, I am the byproduct of a mass murder. So, okay, that is a strange thing to think because you think... Everything good about my life is derived from this terrible tragedy. Should we go around murdering people? No, <laughs> right? Obviously not. Like it's it's something where there's an unforeseen consequence of a tragedy 119 years ago is this conversation. Great. But 
the flip side of it is like you can't you can't you know you, you you can't anticipate the randomness so you just try to live your life according to a set of principles that inflict the least amount of harm on people try to make the world a little bit better and so on some of those positive intentions will create catastrophe right i mean this is the nature of randomness and ripple effects is like you know there are things that people do random acts of kindness which will help someone in the short term but could lead to immense trauma down the line maybe the person who benefits from the random act of kindness has a different child that person turns out to be a serial killer does that end up meaning that the random act of kindness was stupid no of course not right so this is the, it's, it's like there's a pragmatic side of like what do you do on the day-to-day existence and I think that we, you know, you, you don't have to live your life profoundly differently. I think there's some stuff I talk about in the book, like experimentation that you would do a bit more of. But it's more about the appreciation for the importance of, of human action, basically. And I think at the core of the book as well is an insistence on the fallacy of predictability. Yeah. The, that to pretend like you can predict into an infinite set of possibilities of the future is built on a bed of sand. And um, there's another Taleb quote, but he says, um, how can we predict a future of infinite possibilities based off a finite experience of the past? Well, and I think I'd add to that, right, as well. And and he, he talks about this dynamic as well. I'm not inventing a new idea, but it's, but it's, you know, if the past and the present have different forms of causality in the sense of different drivers of change, then the past experience might actually be worse than nothing. Because if the world is changing, there's a, there's a, a point I, I, I started grappling with this problem as a political scientist a long time ago um, when uh, I was thinking about the Arab Spring because I did, I did research field work in Tunisia. And I mean, this is like, it's a great example of the book, uh, even though I very, very, very briefly touch on it in the text, um, just because I didn't want it to, you know, to boil down in the weeds too much. But First off, you have a guy in central Tunisia who lights himself on fire. And this is why the Arab Spring happens. It's the initial trigger for it. Of course, there's unrest and so on, but there's lots of places that have unrest and they don't end up having, you know, civil wars and uprisings and, and, and dictators getting toppled all the time. So the, the immediate cause is this person who just somewhat randomly lights himself on fire and sparks this uprising in the Middle East, you know, goes on fire as a result. Now, the, the other thing about this is like in political science, there's this work that talks about how all these Middle Eastern dictatorships are basically super stable. And this, this is like stuff that's coming out in 2009, 2010, right before the Arab Spring happens. And they're explaining, oh, here's why they're so stable. Well, then the Arab Spring happens and you're like, okay, all the theories were wrong. And the question is, is that actually true? There's two ways of thinking about this. And this is something that I think people don't always appreciate the difference between them, but it's very, very important. One is that the theories were wrong and they were falsified by what happened in Tunisia and the rest of the Arab Spring. The second possibility is that the world changed and the X to Y you know, relationship, the simplified version of reality, um, did actually accurately explain the past. Yes. And now it doesn't explain the present. And the problem is, functionally, we can never tell the difference. So when you have a theory falsified, it could be the case. I mean, in science, there's a there's a principle. You know, if you mix baking soda and vinegar together, it's going to fizz whether an ancient Roman did it or whether I do it, and it's going to fizz whether someone does it in Malawi or whether they do it in you know in in the UK. That's not true for social relationships. The time, the place, the exact moment of causality can shift outcomes, right? So. You can have stuff where it's highly predictive in the short time period in the past and then falsified in a different context. It doesn't mean the theory's wrong. It might just mean that the, 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 the sort of aspects of this are different. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff we don't appreciate. I'd also say about predictability, I mean, you know, to my mind, 
there's a serious problem with modernity, which is that the way that the world works is not the way that we're told the world works. And I'm not some like crackpot who thinks that modeling is useless, right? I yeah. think we should model. I think yeah. for like the pandemic, it was useful to model and so on. It's more that we have to remember that the model is not the world, right? The, the, the saying is often no the gospel. map. Yes, and, and the map is not the territory, right? This sort of idea. Um, and the, the reason for this is because when you think that the model is the world, you start to have this illusion of control. So if you think that there are five variables that are important to predict outcomes, and you can manipulate those variables, then you start to think, oh, well, okay, all I have to do is tweak this and tweak that, and that's the recipe for a, a positive outcome. And we always end up with disaster when we do that, right? I mean, there's unintended consequences, there's complexity that we're ignoring and so on. So I think, I think there's been an internalization in modern society, a lot of businesses, a lot of politics, a lot of economics, et cetera, internalize this false lesson that, you know, if we just had a slightly better model, we would be fine. It's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of reality. Models can be useful in short time frames to try to tame some level of risk, but there are some uncertainties for which models are completely useless. And uh, it, it's not just you know, a, a problem. It's actually downright dangerous to base decisions on uh, models that give you a false sense of control and a false illusion of certainty. Each behavior is informed by an unknowable amount of variables, which then changes the future behaviors of every other variable in that system. And therefore, like you say, looking back on something, you can accurately model, but projecting forward, you can't. And there's a fantastic part from the book, which explicitly highlights this. So I'll just read it out. In 2016, The Economist analyzed 15 years worth of economic forecasts from the IMF covering 189 countries. During that period, a country entered a recession 220 separate times, a crucial economic downturn with serious consequences for millions. The IMF produces forecasts twice a year, once in April, once in October. How often do these forecasts correctly predict the onset of a recession? How often do our best minds get it right? Out of 220 cases, the answer was zero. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know this is the kind of stuff where the way that people usually respond to that, and I think is is somewhat unfair, is they say, oh, these people must be morons, right? Um, I think there is a lesson there that is uh, stupid, which is we haven't changed our, our, our outlook on whether we can actually predict these things, even though we continue to fail them. So that is stupid. But the reason why they fail is just because of, of huge amounts of uncertainty that exists in the real world of a complex system of modern economy. I mean, you know, trying to understand 8 billion individual people interacting in a system that has some level of order, but a significant amount of disorder within it is just fundamentally impossible, right? And I, I, th I always say this to people where it's like, you know, you think back on like the, the past 24 years, right? So we're, we're going back to the, the turn of the millennium. I mean, all of the geopolitical forecasts were invalidated by 9-11, right? So in 2000, all that is wrong for a long time. Then you have all the economic forecasts just totally invalidated by the financial crisis. All the political forecasts invalidated by, in the Middle East, by the Arab Spring, then by the rise of Brexit, Trump, et cetera. Then you have the pandemic. I mean, imagine making a forecast in 2019. How accurate yeah. was that? <laughs> I mean, it's just the point is that this is not an aberration anymore. Like this is just the way the world is. And I think a lot of people, what they do is they look at shocks, right? And, and this is the point that Nassim Nicholas Taleb also makes very, very well as he says, look, you know, these shocks, these black swans are not like things that are aberrations. They are part of the system. And so 
if you, if you, t- and very often I see this where it's like, you look at a model and they're like, we have removed the outlier. And you're like, but the outlier is part of the, it's part of the data that's really, really important, right? It's like, it's like how well is the U.S. doing at stopping terrorism? Oh, we're going to, we're going to take data from, you know, 1990 to September 10th, 2000, 2001. I mean, to anyone who's looking at that, it sounds ridiculous, but very often, you know, a lot of uh, quantitative modeling does this because the outlier messes up their uh, regression. So, you know, what, what I always say is like, I think, and this is, part of the book where I talk about things like the sand pile model and self-organized criticality and some of these ideas where we have designed systems that don't just guarantee black swans, but they make them more likely. In other words, we have built systems that are more contingent and more prone to fluke. So if I, if I were trying to describe the history of the world in a very broad sense around contingency, which is the idea that, you know, a fluke can change everything. What I would say is that the world has become far more contingent over time because of the social systems we've engineered, which have very, very little slack. And, you know, Taleb talks about this with resilience and so on in his work. Um, but it's the same sort of, uh, of problem where it's like, you know, the sand pile model in physics basically talks about how if you add one grain of sand to a pile, eventually the, pi- the pile gets tall enough where an additional grain of sand can cause the collapse. So every grain of sand is causing the collapse. You, if you take some of them away, it will be less likely, Right. But then the one that's at the top is actually the trigger for it. And I use this analogy to say, okay, well, if you think about the history of humanity, our sand piles used to be a lot lower. They just, they weren't that tall. So like every additional grain wasn't going to cause a problem because like you live in these simple hunter-gatherer societies or you live in these empires, but they're not that, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're not hyper-optimized to the point of no resilience, no slack. Today, we have so much optimization in systems that we falsely believe we can control that a single boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal, according to one estimate, caused $54 billion of economic damage, right? And like that just wasn't possible 40 years ago. Like you just, a boat gets stuck in the Suez Canal, it would be like annoying, but like it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't destroy a huge amount of global trade. And so this is why the modeling is so important to understand it's not the same as reality, because if you believe that you can control these things, you optimize to the absolute limit, and that creates uh, contingency on steroids. And that's what I think is happening right now. And just to compound on that same effect, how interconnected we are across cultures, how much our population is getting bigger and bigger day on day, and then as well how interhinged our entire global economic system is from financial markets all the way down to half the stuff in this kitchen is probably almost certainly actually from another country. And yeah, like you say, amazing with that um, sand metaphor, the bigger it gets, the harder the fall. Yeah. Well, and, and also the more frequent it is because the when it when it collapses, it never collapses to zero, right? It collapses to a, a still very large sand pile. So it, but it's, it's messy. Yeah, and it's well exactly, but it's also on the it's on the precipice of this sort of you know sometimes used in physics this term of edge of chaos, right? This sort of tipping points um, become much more likely when you're on the edge of chaos. I mean, the thing is I, that I find interesting intellectually here is that the world is substantially more interconnected. But if we're talking about it from like a physics or chaos theory point of view, it's not different in how it's actually operating in reality in the sense that, you know, there were ripple effects when somebody in ancient Egypt did something. It's just that they like took a very long time and had very modest impacts. And what I think is- Yes, exactly. They were very localized. I mean, they might've had, you know, they, they could have global impacts over the long run. Who knows, you know, how long it would take. And sometimes, you know, you invent a new technology and it might take 400 years for it to spread globally. Uh, whereas now it's in four minutes, right? I mean, somebody can, if, if it works, people will adopt it. Um, and I think this is the kind of stuff where it's not like the, the nature of reality has shifted. It's more just that 
we have designed systems in which contingencies are amplified. And that's a fancy way of saying when stuff goes wrong, it goes wrong really fast and has much bigger outcomes um, for a larger proportion of the population. The pandemic's the perfect example, right? I mean, it's, it, there's debate about the origin story of the pandemic, but whether it's a lab leak or whether it's a zoonotic you know, transmission, one virus infecting one person upended the lives, the daily lives of billions of people um, you know, for years. I think that is the, I was thinking about this during the pandemic. I think that event is the event that, that affected the largest proportion of the population of any event in human history um, in, in terms of their daily lives. I don't think there's any other event that has literally changed how almost everyone on the planet lives on a day-to-day basis other than the, the, the modern pandemic. And even compared to previous pandemics, the Spanish flu affected lots of countries, but it did not cause total shifts in governance, economics, daily life. Behavior. Behavior uh, for pretty much everyone alive. Um, yeah. And that's, that's an extraordinary thing. So Nisim Taleb echoes throughout the whole book um, I just wonder when he came into your life and how he shaped your worldview. Yeah, I, I think I read, I don't know exactly, but I read Black Swan slowly, uh, shortly after it came out. And I think one of the things that I like about that book, um, you know, there, there, there are some things where I uh, disagree with him on or, or, you know, take issue with how he presents ideas sometimes. But for the most part, I think he's, his work was a brilliant corrective uh, to a lot of thinking. And what is so... What I did get inspired from him by when I was writing Fluke was, in addition to his ideas on uncertainty, which I found hugely, hugely helpful, um, what he basically did is say, like, the entire edifice of economics and uh, predictive forecasting is wrong. And, like, that's an incredibly bold thing to do. And, you know, I'm doing something sort of equally arrogant in Fluke where I'm saying I think the worldview we have about, like, the nature of reality is incorrect. And I... I, I think if I hadn't read Black Swan, it's not just that we uh, that I was affected by the ideas. I was affected by the scale of the ambition and saying, screw it. Like, I think I'm going to say what I think is true. It sounds, you know, a little bit insane to say I think most people have fundamentally misunderstood how the world works. Um, but I, you know, I, I sort of said, OK, well, you know what? Like, I, I think that. <laughs> so maybe I should say that. And that's, you know, that's what I've written. So but I don't know exactly when it was. I, I when I was researching Fluke, I, I um I reread uh, Fooled by Randomness and The Black Swan and, um, and you know, they, they, they were, you know, they're, they're, they're excellent in their density of ideas and so on. Um, and so I think he's, he's, he's a renegade thinker who has done a lot to challenge um, conventional orthodoxy and so on. And I think it's something where I would like more people to take a step back from things that are conventional wisdom and challenge them because I think it is something where you know, there's a difference between doing this from the realm of like, you know, anti-vax conspiracy theories and stuff like that, where people are challenging the orthodoxy based on just misunderstandings of science compared to questioning assumptions within good faith critiques of how we understand very, very complex dynamics of cause and effects, which is what he does. Not going after one system in particular, but rather the thinking that informs the systems overall. Yeah, I mean, I you know, this is the stuff where like, I I think there's another thing that 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 I just I I haven't you know I wrote in fluke I have this line I say a few times where I say I'm a disillusioned social scientist. What I don't go into in in, in detail because I don't want to make you know fluke autobiographical, but like I felt I've just felt like a fish out of water in my own field for a long time. Like and I, it's not because I'm 
you know, clever or different from, from my colleagues or whatever. It's just like I, I went to these political science conferences and I would listen to these papers and they would do excellent research. I mean, there's a lot of people in political science who are doing amazing things and I'm not trying to denigrate any of their research. But there was this underlying assumption that like the way to understand this is just to have an ever more sophisticated quantitative model with like seven variables. And if we only get the variables right, then we'll like be able to tame chance and uncertainty and at least to a point where it's, you know, uh, pragmatically useful. And there's a question here, which I think, you know, Taleb also touches on in his work, or at least informs it, which is like, what are these things for, right? Like, why are we doing this? And I, I think that social science, to a weird degree, has fixated on trying to chase uh, what I call the holy grail of causality, trying to find the, the perfect model to match the past data. And it's forgotten that the reason we do this stuff is to try to avoid catastrophe and make people's lives better. And so I think there's been a gravitation away from predictive modeling in social science, which is, I think, ultimately doomed to fail, uh, but it could be doomed to fail less than it is now if we get better at it, right? And so, you know, I don't know, I, I, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a very unconventional political scientist in this, in this regard, but I do think that there is a lot of stuff baked into the assumptions of modern social science that are just fundamentally wrong. This really uh, echoes an experience I have as well, and I just um, uh, wonder what you make of it. It might just be the case that it's way more comfortable to just look the other way. Everyone has so much shit constantly happening between their ears. They don't want to start necessarily drawing into question in a serious manner, is actually what I'm doing making a difference worthwhile, etc. So I sell a software into the finance industry and Taleb points this out brilliantly, but it is such a thriving industry, advice, um, all types of media that supports it, all types of consultancies that you can buy at very expensive per hour rates to tell you how to spend your money. Whereas again and again, and the longer the time period going back, you draw it, just putting in an S&P index outperforms everyone. And therefore, what is all this money being spent for? And it might just be comfortable to look the other way rather than actually acknowledge that this might not be a good use of time. Yeah, the one no. So I, I love this because the one the one really practical use of a bit of advice that I think Fluke does have for people is to experiment more. And I think this is where you know one of the things I did. The the book synthesizes social science with you know some ideas like chaos theory from physics and self organized criticality. But one of the main ones is evolutionary biology. And the wisdom of evolution is undirected experimentation. I mean, it's an amazing thing about um, you know everything you look around and see the, from you know plants and trees to you know complex animals and so on. It's just you know mutations that had no rhyme or reason to them, but some of them worked and they survived and were passed on, on average to the next generation, which is how you know evolution works. Now the lesson for us is that this is something. It's it's the smart way to deal with radical uncertainty. If you truly have no idea how to make a decision, you should experiment more. And this is where the advice gurus are a mistake because the advice gurus are telling you, oh, we understand something that is impossible to understand. And we're going to tell you what to do. And they're going to, there's going to be groupthink here. And it's also going to be confirmation bias, right? So one of my favorite stories, I stumbled across this. You know, it's like <laughs> one of the great joys of researching a book like this is you go down these, you spend just days reading about the most random thing. And then it ends <laughs> up being like 300 words in the book. Yeah. And one of them was, it's about this... Um, this this uh, group of, of hunter-gatherers in Southeast Asia where they cultivate rice and rubber. And rubber is this kind of crop that basically, as long as you plant it in the same spot and like basically treat it well, it's going to grow every year. So there's no problem. 
Rice is highly sensitive to weather patterns and crop soil soil, uh, quality and so on, all this type of stuff. And these are unpredictable to the people because they don't have good climate models. They're, you know, they're hunter gatherers. What they do to plant the rice is they look, they have this belief in sacred birds. And there's like, I forget how many there are. There's a bunch of them that they think are sacred. And they basically watch the movements of these specific species and they use them as omens for where to plant the rice. The amazing thing about this is they've developed a random number, basically a random number generator, right? Because the, the birds fly in effectively random patterns and it's also random because who sees the bird moving and then who subjectively interprets what that movement means. And so through that randomness, they've actually made a system that works much better than the directed uh, choices of the surrounding groups that plant rice. Because in that moment of uncertainty, they basically just diversify. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's one of these things where identifying a situ- like a system that you know how it works exactly, right? Like uh, sports are a great analogy for this. Coin flips are a great analogy where like the rules are always the same, the dynamics are always the same, etc. In those closed systems, you should optimize. Like it makes sense. Like you shouldn't do something that's not going to work. But in systems that have a large uh, level of uncertainty, you should ratchet down optimization, ratchet up resilience and ratchet up experimentation because the more that you are uncertain, the more that trying out lots of different strategies is actually wise. And this is where the gurus who tell you, if only you do X, everything will be fine. They're very often not worth the cash. <laughs> yeah, evidently. I mean, most of the time, the guru is the blindfolded person who met it to the other side of the street. That they, they cannot recognize the randomness and luck that, that got them there in the first place. But what should one do with that lesson? Well, I think there's a few things. I think on your daily life, you know, I think experimentation is really wise. Uh, and, and I, you know, I have to internalize this more than I do already. It's something where, you know, I can give all the advice I want to, but like, you know, I'm still a creature of habit. I don't experiment as much as I should. But like the great example that I love from uh, a very good economic study, uh, having trashed economics in some ways previously, <laughs> it's a very good economic study that looked at a tube strike in London. So the subway shuts down because the drivers go on strike. And uh, they look at the geolocation data of these uh, anonymized cell phones, and they find that after the tube strike forced all the people of London to get to work in a different way, 5% of those people stuck to the new method, right? And either it was more enjoyable or faster, more efficient, whatever whatever metric they were using, they liked it more. And it was forced by the shock that was seen to them as a huge inconvenience. And so the point was, if they hadn't had this, if they hadn't been forced into experimentation, they would still be on the old route. So there's a certain level, I would say, you know, 5 to 15% of our lives where probably we think we've optimized it for some metric. And actually, a little bit more experimentation in daily life would probably serve us well. I think the same is true, by the way, in, in business. I think there's a lot of people in business politics as well who get into to, to groupthink. This is the way you do things. And a little bit more of, you know, like A-B testing, which was which is used to great effect in websites, you know, where they have like two headlines or two different styles and they see which generates more clicks. I think public policy should be a lot more experimental. Um, you know, there's, there's problems with this because people don't like the idea of being a guinea pig. But I wrote a, a piece a couple of years ago where it looked at uh, a really novel strategy in Vancouver with homelessness, where they said, like, what happens if we give support to homeless people, where we uh, give them some guidance and training and all these sorts of you know, things, versus what happens if we just give them a, like, basically a bag of cash, right? Like literally just hand them a bunch of money. And it turned out that the money was way more effective at reducing drug use and also getting the people into permanent housing 
which is not what people would expect, right? They, a lot of people would expect you give a homeless person who's possibly got addiction issues a huge amount of money, they're just going to blow it on drugs. It was actually the opposite, and they found this out through experimentation. The problem is, of course, you know, a lot of taxpayers might not be okay with experimental approaches because they want to be told this is the best strategy. But, you know, it's stupid over the long run because, like, experimenting with public policy is just all we should care about. And this is where partisanship also should do, you know, should be reduced by experimentation. It's like we should care about what works. We should decide as a society (laughs) what metrics we want to. So, okay, we want to reduce poverty. Okay, let's do a a randomized control trial with two different policy types or three different policy types. See what works. Surely every political stripe can agree on that. Now, it's a bit naive because, of course, Politics is so broken at the moment that they probably wouldn't. (laughs) But like that should be the idea. The idea should be like let's actually experiment and find out what works and then use those strategies and agree on cross-party basis. That requires immense leadership and and like elite communication, right? Which evidently doesn't really exist. Yeah, but I think I think people of the political structures I can think of. Yeah, so I agree with you, and I think it's going to be hard, you know, easier said than done to do this. But the 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 point that I would make is that when you think about modern politics, I do think that like a lot of people do actually care about outcomes, right? Like they they actually care about things that work, and like you see this in the UK right now. There's like the 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 Conservative Party is about to get wiped out most likely in the next elections uh, coming up later this year. And a large degree of their loss is going to be attributed, I think rightly, to the decline in public services. And there's a lot of people who are conservative voters, lifelong conservative voters, who are abandoning them because they're just saying it doesn't work. And so I think there's an idea, there's a smaller group of people that's ideologically motivated, purely, like you know, unapologetically. And those people are not persuadable. But there's a very large group of people, I think, that are persuadable based on outcomes. And if you were able to have an experimental approach to public policy and people saw that it actually improved services and improved governance, you could lead them that way, right? I mean, you'd have to do it very, very well um, because, and you'd also have to minimize a lot of the uh, potential harms of experimentation because of course there's concerns about ethics, right? Like uh, during the pandemic, for example, like it probably would have been a very, very useful thing to do what are called challenge trials, where you deliberately infect people with COVID with different uh, vaccines, and you also deliberately expose them to COVID with different masks. Now, if they had actually done that in a controlled environment, it would have provided very good evidence that I think a lot of people would have accepted about the efficacy of both masks and vaccines, because they would have said, look, we we put 100 people in a room, we shot a whole bunch of COVID at them, and the people wearing masks had this much lower uh, rates of infection. Okay, that's very persuasive. The ethics of that are complex, right? Can you do this? Even if they're volunteers, there's still questions about it. And would people trust the outcome? Yeah, well, that's in, in the U.S. You've got you know some some of the more in, in in certain you know the U.S. where I'm from is a very very broken society culturally. So like, um, yeah, there there would be serious problems with this. I think in lots of places though they would they would they would point to these studies and be like, okay, you know, um, this works. And so I think the, the other thing that you can do is you can do natural experiments where you just you know the U.S. sometimes is relatively good at this in the sense that the 50 states are laboratories for policy experimentation. Um, they do try different things. And uh, the problem is, of course, comparing apples to apples. They're not randomized control trials. So like if Florida does something and then New York does something, I mean, these are two very different states and the demographics of the people are different, The you know, all this stuff. So you can't always infer based on natural experiments exactly what happened, whereas randomized control trials, you have a better sense of, of cause and effect. I, you know, I just think that the you have to have a leader who can prime people to say, look, there are a lot of things that we think we know, which we don't. 
And so we're going to try various approaches. And if one of them turns out to work better, we are totally fine with abandoning our partisan belief and just going for what works. Um, the, the struggle, by the way, is agreeing on the metrics. I mean, you know, like, for example, you have a contentious issue like abortion. I would think that the agreed upon point would be you want to reduce the number of abortions. And, and pretty much everyone of every stripe would agree with this. However, the way you get there is, is very, very difficult because there's certain ethical concerns that some groups in that deba debate will not cross a red line on. And so, you know, there, there are some metrics that would not be obvious, whereas like, you know, anti-poverty, okay, like we should all be able to agree we want to have child poverty be reduced. Um, and we just need to figure out what the best mechanism of, of, of a, you know, of getting to that point mm -hmm. is. This is a really quick one, not necessarily fluke related, but since you're a political scientist, I want to see what you think about it. Um, are, you familiar with the are you familiar with the minority rule? Uh, which, which one? How an immovable minority yeah. can outweigh a flexible majority yes. and how that phenomenon explains a lot of the uh, wildness yes. in politics. Yeah, and I think this is true. I mean, I think this is something where, you know, you you, you also, it depends on the system quite a lot um, as well, where immovable minorities, as you put it, can end up having a stranglehold on the on the process. The U.S. is a perfect example of this, right? You have a, there, there is a minority of people, uh, you know, picking up on the abortion uh, issue we were just talking about. It's a pretty small minority of people who have very strong anti-abortion views in the United States, 30 to 30 to 35% probably, but they're a significant proportion of the Republican base. And they have captured that uh, political party's viewpoints to such a degree that the, the you know, they, they made it a huge issue for Supreme Court justices and so on. The institutions have amplified the voice of that minority through things like the courts, but also through the electoral college, et cetera. So what I think is important is to try to find, you know, this is this is where I think there are conversations around modern democracy that deal with reform that need to be much broader than the standard recipe of just tweaking things here and there. I think we need to have more policy experimentation. I think we need to have more randomization for oversight, for example, where you bring in random groups of citizens and consult them on questions and, and just for advisory opinions. But like, I think it'd be useful. I think it'd be useful to say like, here's all the information. Because normally what you get from consulting people is polls and they don't get information. You say like, what do you think about the idea of you know doing X? And it's like, well, they've never had any time to be briefed on it. It's just like a knee-jerk reaction to it. If you have like a random citizen assembly that can provide advisory opinions, you can say like, look, we're going to bring in like 10 experts of different political views who are going to brief you on this idea and we want to get your take on this. A randomized group of citizens thoughtfully considering things, that's a much more uh, valuable opinion to my mind than a poll where someone calls you and says, hey, what do you think of this thing you've never thought of before? And then basing a percentage on, on that belief where they might be swayed by um, being more informed by the, by the actual evidence and, and so on. All right, Brian, one more lesson from Fluke. Um, you write about, in other words, extremist and a mediocre stand. Can you explain why this is an idea worth absorbing? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I talk about this with uh, with billionaires, for example, and and this is something that Taleb obviously you know popularized in his writing. Um, you know, th because randomness produces extreme outliers and some traits like wealth, uh, and this is echoing Taleb again. Um, you have this sort of backwards inference that wealthy people must be clever, right, or must be talented. 
There's a great model uh, that I came across, and this is much more recent, so it's not in, in Taleb's work, where economists work together with physicists and they make this, make this fake version of the world. And uh, they basically create a normal distribution of talent, which is true. It's not, it's, you know, you're, you're going to have some very talented people, but like nobody in the world is a billion times talented than somebody else, right? More, more talented than somebody else. Um, whereas wealth, you do have people who are a billion times richer, yeah. right? Um, and so this is the kind of thing where they were trying to figure out the relationship. And of course, there's going to be some loose correlation between talent and, and, and wealth. What they found was they, when they modeled this with this uh, you know, fake reality, they said, let's, let's randomly inject luck into uh, the world. And it will be like a lightning strike, right? Which is the nature of luck. Every so often, somebody will get struck by lightning and, and this will benefit them in the model. What they found, which I think is intuitive when you hear about it, but it's not the way we think about the world naturally, is that where is the lightning most likely to strike? Well, it's most likely to strike in the middle because that's where almost everybody is, right? Almost everyone in the world is distributed close to the average level of talent. There are some people who are very talented on the long tail on, on one side, and there are some people who are very not talented on the long tail on the other side. But like the lightning is far less likely to strike in those places just because there's fewer people there. And so every time they ran the simulation, what they found was that the person who ended up the richest in the world was almost always from the middle level of talent because they kept, you know, they just happened to be the person that got struck by lightning three times. Um, whereas the person on the long tail was either not getting struck by lightning or was only going to get one lucky event or one unlucky event. And they found a very strong correlation between luck and, and wealth in their model. And so I think this is the kind of stuff where, you know, the more that you systematically analyze these aspects of uncertainty and randomness, the more you have a healthy appreciation that the sense that we have that we deserve all of our success and we deserve all the blame for our failure is just untrue. And I think this is where you, you start to go from economic modeling to philosophy and, and sort of life outlook. You know, I, I, every success that I have had has been derived to an extraordinary degree from things that were out of my control that I take no credit for. And every failure I've had has been the same. And that makes me feel like a little bit better when things go bad and it makes me feel a little bit less like I should be arrogant or full of myself when things go well because you know, I've benefited from a huge amount of invisible uh, luck that has struck me repeatedly in you know, the lottery of birth, having supportive parents, you know, getting a good education, all, all these Being things. Being in the right place at the right time. Completely. I mean, all these things are things that were out of my control. And, you know, as I say, if I was born the same body in, uh, in rural Madagascar, I, I, I wouldn't be talking to you. And so that internalizes the lesson that, you know, Cut people some slack, <laughs> um, and also don't don't beat yourself up so much. A lot of people. This is the this is the the you know not to go into the self help territory too much, but this is the <laughs> stuff that I really find dangerous about the modern self help world. Is you know the American dream and the offshoots of some of the evangelical prosperity gospel, which basically say you can call prosperity into existence. It's just sort of up to you. Um, it makes people believe that they are responsible for all of their failures exclusively. And that is something that I think has been internalized by a lot of people who really struggle in the modern world where they think like every time that they don't have the life that they dream of, which is sold to them, by the way, by the American dream, like the way that you have a happy life is to have a huge house and a huge car and all this type of stuff, you know, ever more stuff. Um, that's sold to them. And then when they fail to achieve it, they think, oh, I'm a failure. And it's like, no, like there's a very complicated world out there and, and you have some control, but you don't have as much control as you've been told. And I think that's a lesson that's worth uh, remembering. 
And the more you absorb the worldview of fluke, the worldview of the inserto, the more you can identify where the randomness is striking and maybe move towards it. You're going to be more likely um, experience an offshoot of randomness in a big populated city where you're hanging out with people in a direction that you want to go. But you can you can only ever go directionally. You can never actually find a specific track. Um, and this is a pretty cynical take, but I... Um, as an example of what you just said, a lot of the masters of the universe, the richest people in the world, they exist in San Francisco and they made a lot of their money in the last 20, 30 years. And they made a lot of their money by being various types of investors. And it's not because they're 150x smarter or more talented than anyone else. They happen to be there and they happen to like be in such a small insular town where they knew a bunch of really interesting people creating businesses that needed money. And all of a sudden, I mean, I can think of one specific name, but it would just be mean to call them out. But you're not 100x smarter than the next person. You're 100x luckier. It doesn't mean you didn't work extremely hard because you absolutely did. And good on you for making um, such a success of yourself. But that 100x difference is not attributable to you. No, and I think this is something where you know we we we, we misunderstand the world uh, in 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 a very very deep way when we write history backwards, right? And this is you know this is exactly Taleb's point about you know narr- the narrative fallacy and so on. You have all these invisible failures and all these you know I, I talk about this. There's a great idea. I don't know if Taleb talks about this, but there was a there's a Princeton professor who inspired me to talk about this with my students. Um, and he posted something that I thought was so just wonderful. He posted his CV of failure and a normal CV for an academic, you know, is a couple pages long, all the publications, all this stuff. His was like 35 pages long. And what he listed was every rejection, every failed grant proposal, every time he applied for a job and didn't get an interview, et cetera. And it just ran page after page after page. And so I always say this to my students, I always say, look, you know, you know, if you look at someone who's successful, you are seeing the survivorship bias of the benefits of, of that success. You're not seeing, even, even for the successful people, they've had a lot of failures. A lot of the venture capitalists who you're talking about or the people in Silicon Valley who have made huge amounts of money, they were able to do that because they were able to have 100 bad bets and the one big one paid off, right? Like they, they may have had a rate of success lower than the average, but as long as they had enough money to go into enough pots, one of them was going to pay off in a big way. And that's, you know, interestingly, by the way, this is the publishing model. Uh, this is the way publishers work. They, they basically, most books uh, lose money. And every so often you get a Harry Potter and it subsidizes or a Sapiens, right? And it subsidizes the rest of the authors for like 10 years. Like Sapiens is subsidizing every other book because it just went so big. Um, How big did it get? I I mean, tens of millions of copies. I'm not, I mean, huge amounts of money. You know, JK Rowling. So, I mean, she's a multi-billionaire, one of the richest people in in the world. Um, And so the, and and actually, you know, this, this is a great, uh, a great story. I, I met the, the the man who bought Harry Potter um, at at Bloomsbury Publishing, and um, and it was a small boutique publisher, and she had been rejected I think sixteen times, maybe something like that. She keeps she kept the letters right, and she's posted them before. Um, she'd been rejected for the the manuscript of Harry Potter like sixteen times before, and this guy at at, uh, at Bloomsbury like he he hands it. I think it was to his daughter. Uh, I can't remember exactly how old she was, maybe like ten or eleven or something. He hands her Harry Potter, you know, like prints it off, <laughs> and uh, and he 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 tell he told me the story anyway. I don't know you know how true it is, but he told he told me the story. He says, uh, yeah, like I came down to breakfast the next day, and she had not slept, and she wow. said, Daddy. 
buy the book. <laughs> you know, and he paid like twenty. I think it was twenty five hundred pounds for the rights to Harry Potter. It's pro- I think that's probably the best investment anyone has made in the modern world. Um, that's but incredible. but it's you know but like the other sixteen like they weren't stupid, right. they just you know they thought it wasn't yeah. you know oh, you know people have done witchcraft before maybe it's not a big market you know who knows, like this is the point where is that man way smarter than no he just like he happened to hand it to his daughter who happened to love the book who happened you know and maybe there's a world in which Harry Potter just doesn't get produced you know she just gets her seventeenth rejection and that's it so I think there's stuff like this where you know we we always infer backwards. Um, and then those people who are successful are the ones who tell us how to live. It's a very stupid way to take advice. <laughs> so, If you just think of it probabilistically, there is undoubtedly a graveyard of a million ideas, yeah. better than Harry Potter, better than Apple, better than anything, which just did not have the um, appropriate strike of luck at the right time. Yeah, there's one idea in the book that I really am fascinated by as well, uh, which is the idea of what I call lock-in. I'm not sure if there's a technical term for this, but I, it's basically the way I describe how every so often you have something that arrives, technology, whatever, and then it gets solidified in some way that, that persists. My favorite example, by the way, is, is about dogs in the book where um, Victorian-era Britain, these rich aristocrats who were bored, basically decided to create breed standards for the first time. And basically all dogs that exist today are derived from those breed standards because it locked in these physical traits. Before that, dogs were um, defined purely by their function. And then all of a sudden, in like the 1870s, they start to be defined by their uh, appearance. And this is why, you know, I've got a border collie and like there was literally a trial uh, in Scotland to determine what a border collie is because someone sued over fraudulent sale. And this locked in the breed because like you had to say, if I'm going to call this a border collie, it has to look like this. So my dog is derived from this uh, lock-in. But the more obvious example is the printing press, right? So um, English has been a language of immense flux uh, for a very long time. And if you look prior to the printing press, the spellings are super diverse depending on who's doing the you know, transcription and who's writing and you know, where you are in the English-speaking language and so on. All of a sudden, the printing press comes around and you've got to standardize. And the, the language just solidifies in this very, very short snapshot of time. And the point I always make is like, if that had happened 30 years earlier or 100 years later, wow. we'd have a different language. That's incredible. Right? Because it locked it in. So um, all these sorts of things happen in, and, and create longer uh, staying power by accident. And just the language we speak, the way we can communicate mind to word to idea of 50-year change and how the language is solidified has unforeseeable outcomes. Yes. And I think, you know, this is something where the, the, the more easy to grip uh, ideas in our modern world are things like, you know, there's the, the, the classic example is uh, VHS versus Betamax, where, um, you know, there's two technologies that basically do the same thing. VHS got a slight advantage in early sales, and it had what is called increasing returns, which is basically as more people bought it, more people wanted to buy it. And as more people bought the VHS players, it became more of a cost to replace them because they already had the hardware. And so all of a sudden, even though these technologies are basically both good, one of them just wipes out the other, right? And, I, and this is the sort of stuff where you can have a lock-in in technology. I mean, musical instruments, another example I love, where it's like, why do we have the musical instruments we do? 
And there's nothing amazing about a guitar that's different from some other possible interest, instrument. It's just like we determined that a standard kind of instrument is a guitar. So now everything is created to that exact standard. If somebody tried to sell you a, a guitar with 27 strings, you would say, what the hell is this? And demand your money back, right? And the only reason for that isn't because uh, it's better or worse. It's because the way that people learned from lock-in was how to play a specific instrument. And therefore, they have to keep making the same instrument. So like contingencies of history sometimes get washed out a little bit more because they're not locked in. Other ones get locked in and they can last forever. And the English language is the perfect example of one that, you know, we're, or, or the, the, the other one I love is um, the Quran. The Quran is viewed as the word of God in Islam. So it is perfect in, in the religion. That's, it's viewed as perfect. This meant that when I was studying Arabic and reading Arabic, um, you can read, you know, 7th century texts as you could today because the language has been locked in so much by the Quran that they don't want to change it. So like, even though some word choices change, there's some arcane words and so on in, in seventh century literature in Arabic, the actual structure of the language is almost identical. And this is amazing, I mean, it's, but it's just because, you know, the Bible was not viewed as the literal word of God in the same way the Quran is. They, they always say it's an, it's an interpretation of the Quran, never in a translation, because they don't believe you can translate um, the, the true word of God. But that belief has locked in Quranic Arabic into the language today, and it's still the same language. And like, you know, that's the sort of stuff where you think about these accidents of history, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's just stuck with us, you know, for, for centuries. It's really evident how um, passionate you are about the ideas that have come through this book. You say it, it changed your worldview more than any other project you've ever done. Um, but I can just say that that really comes through, shines through. That's an amazing what you just said. To round off the extremist and mediocre standpoint, it's worthwhile noting that you're swimming deep in the waters of extremist and book publishing, podcast production, and as well, uh, Substack. And I think I'm not exaggerating if I say you're at the tail end of all three of those distributions. So congratulations. I mean, <laughs> either there's some been extraordinary luck have we've been talking about here or there's some exceptional talent. There, there is, you know, when I think about my own uh, path, there is a huge amount of, of luck. Uh, and these are the things that are the visible pivots, right? So I, as I said before, there's lots of invisible ones that I don't know about. Um, but there's so many things. Like one of the things that happened early on in my academic life was I uh, submitted a journal article uh, to, a, to a journal. And they took like seven months to get back to me, which was very frustrating. It was like, I want to get this out, you know, seven months. And after seven months, it narrowly got rejected, right? It had like several positive, one negative review, whatever, it's fine. But the point was that happened on the exact same day that um, a terrorist attack happened in Tunisia. And I had, I, I had been in Tunisia up until very, very recently. I was doing research there. So uh, uh, a main outlet, a news outlet, foreign policy, reached out to me and said, could you write something about this uh, terrorist attack? Now, I whipped up this article in the span of like two hours because it was an urgent news request. And uh, it, it was read by like 150,000 people. It was because like, it, it, was the, it was the main thing online at the time about this terror attack from someone who actually understood Tunisian politics. And that juxtapos that, that happened on the same day, right? So that I get one rejection from the journal article on the same day as this foreign policy article gets read by 100,000 people. And it had this <clears throat> reaction in me where I said, hold on, I need to do more public facing stuff. Because, like, obviously there are people who are interested in some of the ideas I have. I can imagine if I had gotten accepted for that journal article or if I had not had it arrive on the same day or that terrorist attack hadn't happened, which is a contingent event, maybe I wouldn't have had this pivot point in my career where I decided to do more media-based things, totally. more outlook. 
So there's all these things. I mean, there's just so many layers of, of contingency anytime someone looks back. And anyone who says otherwise is totally delusional. But a lot of a lot of my success, you know, there's luck in the success, but there's also luck in the way that your path ends up choosing to do certain things, like, for example, trying to have, um, you know, a public-facing academic profile. Amazing. Thinking about the next 20 years of media and journalism, um, I feel like that's a perfect pivot from what you just said. Oh, well, I think that... <laughs> you mean in general how the... How, yeah. oh, sorry, that was a poorly phrased question. No, it's fine. Basically... Um, recognizing that you have these ideas which otherwise would be behind a paywall on some professional publication versus producing them for public consumption how do you think about media and journalism for the next 20 years well there's a lot i mean there's so many things that are problematic i mean one of them is that you have a funding model that is basically not working um, for all but the flagship publications so this is the advertising augmented by subscription model you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times can can work like this, but uh, we've seen the destruction of local journalism through this funding model, unfortunately, and so on from online things. AI is going to be a huge threat, generative models uh, of language. There's other stuff, you know, I, I see this a little bit on, on Substack. Uh, I write a newsletter for Substack, and it creates a very strange financial uh, incentive model because a relatively small amount of people paying in directly to the writer actually can get them to their salary much faster than you would expect, right? I mean, if you're making $5 a month from a subscriber, I mean, you need a 1,000 subscribers to have a salary all of a sudden. And uh, and that's equivalent to what, you know, a, a starting salary might be in some journalistic outlets. So uh, depending on the, you know, if you're working for the New York Times, it might be substantially more. If you're working for a local press, it might be substantially less. But the point is, the thing that I find dangerous about that model, and this doesn't affect me as much because I'm mostly writing about big ideas, right? So I'm not feeling like I'm captured by my audience. What I do, ha- I have heard from a, a person I know who will go unnamed, is you know he he writes from the center from the center left perspective. It's a politics newsletter, huge following, lots of money. The problem he says every time he criticizes Joe Biden, he loses money and substantial amounts. Wow! Right. Yeah. Like, and so he has to decide, like, you know, he has criticisms of Joe Biden, but when he decides to hit send on those emails, he's like, I'm about to delete $5,000 from my income. Do I want to do that? Right. And, you know, whether that is subconscious or not, uh, or or consciously done, it it, it creates an incentive structure where it's called audience capture, um, where if you have a partisan audience, you become more partisan, you start writing more extreme stuff the audience becomes more extreme. It's a ratcheting <laughs> effect, right? And I think this is happening wow. to, an, to an increasing degree in, in, um, in the sort of uh, you know, independent outlets that are becoming more you know, fragmented and so on in the modern world. But that is something that I think is really dangerous. Uh, and as I say, you know, if you're a science journalist, less prone to these problems, or if you're like what I do. Less subscribers too, though. Yeah, well, that's also true. I mean, you, you know, it's easier to... I did know, I mean, I, I, I will say, uh, I knew that I could make a lot more money if I wrote, a, if I wrote an anti-Trump newsletter. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm very unsupportive of Donald Trump, to put it mildly. And I have written about this extensively. There's a lot of people who want to have, uh, you know, anti-Trump views constantly reflected back at them and will pay for it. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of people already doing that. I wanted to engage in bigger ideas and so on. But like there is this stuff, right? You, 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 there's, if, if you're purely trying to make money, there are incentives that exist in the modern media landscape which are not aligned with what's good for society. 
And I think that's true in AI. I think it's true in some of the funding models for local journalism. And I think it's also true for the fragmented uh, independent journalism. That's such a fascinating insight from your friend there, because um, according to the media I've consumed, the sort of personal content creator is supposed to be the way out of this broken journalistic model where you're paying for your political uh, viewpoints reflected at you. Um, yeah, I think because where does that leave us? They're, they're both, but they're both you broken know? in that way. I mean, I, this is the stuff where I, when I wrote for the Washington Post, I used to be a, a weekly columnist for the Washington Post, and um, my editor was—he was great. He was—he was always saying, you know, write about stuff that's important. Well, the problem is I, I couldn't see the actual numbers of clicks. I didn't have access to the data, but what I could see were the number of comments, and there, there's going to be a rough correlation between the number of comments and the number of readers, right? And um, like I wrote this piece about Thai politics. I'm, you know, I study Thai politics, Thailand. What I think was a very important piece about uh, the, the nature of geopolitics between China and the U.S. And, and all this type of stuff and some big questions. It had one comment. I wrote a piece, you know, like the next week about the most, what I found to be boring sort of reactive uh, anti-Trump, just, oh, Trump did this and it was bad. Like 980 comments, right? And you're like... Okay, well, at some point, you know, there is going to be a world in which journalistic choices can be subsidized by, um, you know, the, the, the stuff that gets a lot of clicks so that they can have the foreign correspondents who cover other parts of the world and so on. But at some point, it's a business, you know, and this is where there's also stuff, you know, I'm not trying to, well, I am, I guess, trying to critique my former employer's uh, owner, but Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post. It's one of the richest guys in the world. They just did this massive round of buyouts and layoffs because apparently they were not, you know, happy with the profit margins. There's a public service in the Washington Post. You know, if you're one of the richest people in the world, just pay for it. Yeah. You know, I, there, there's some of that stuff. It where would I do think, so much for yeah. your reputation. What's the, you know, do so much for your reputation. It would do so much for the world. Like, I just think there, there, there's a, there's a degree to which we have to grapple with that question of do we want to live in a world where journalism is predicated on eyeballs and clicks or where we have steady funding streams. And the UK, I think, is a comparatively healthy society relative to the United States. And one of the reasons for that is that 60% of the news media is consumed through the BBC, which the BBC has plenty of things that you can critique about it. But it's it's a reality-based journalistic outlet that covers a broad array of globally important events. Um, And it corrects its mistakes when it makes them and so on. And that creates a, you know, a sort of, um, you know, shared reality for a large degree of the public. The United States has nothing like that. I mean, NPR is a tiny sliver of the media landscape, National Public Radio. Um, Fox News is a tiny sliver of the media landscape. So is CNN. So is MSNBC. But everything is getting more and more fragmented. And, you know, the, 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 the profound insight that I think is worth drawing from this problem is that philosophically democracy is built on a uh, the, the point of democracy is to compromise based on a shared sense of reality right so it's like you you agree on what the problems are you agree what the possible solutions are and then you compromise that's basically the gist of democracy in a nutshell if you take out you know for a long time the compromise was the problem how do we get to you know from point a to point b the problem in the 21st century is the shared sense of reality and that's like a fundamental issue that did not used to be a problem when we had you know in the U.S., for example, three big nightly news broadcasts, and basically whether you lived in Alabama or New York, you basically thought the same things were happening in the world. Now, there was a cost to that in some of the corporate biases that may have existed, but there was a massive benefit in the sense that like reality was shared among 
the population. So there's dangers about the media landscape that I think are being underplayed. It's not just, oh, we'll lose a paper. I think it's like the, the fundamental bedrock of democracy is informed consent of the governed, and that requires journalism. Mm. And you're at the point which it seems like it is in the US um, where you can consume an entirely different view of the state of affairs than your neighbor. Um, which evidently has many problems down the line. And this kind of brings it back a little bit to the fluke worldview, but the idea of smaller groups being able to make better informed decisions because there's more sort of mutual skin in the game. Where I live in Sweden, the SVT is the Swedish broadcaster and they they for sure you know, operated a huge loss, right? But it is 100% in the service of being a public good, small 10 million people population. And even there in the last few years of population growth and economic hard times, you can see the fractures and it's splintering, but it's still an amazing place to tune into the news and amazing, um, especially podcasts and radio to actually tune into. They, they have people in every corner of the planet who are state employees but are journalists and therefore you watch the, the news there and it's really really good and i yeah there's a there's a there's a fallacy i think people have that like you know if, if a journalistic outlet can't survive financially then it's not worth having i mean i think we think about critical infrastructure all the time right like it's like we've got critical infrastructure in terms of national security and you know, nuclear power plants and like now the internet and so on information that informs voter choice is critical infrastructure and I think, you know, there's there's a question we have to ask ourselves as a society, which is like, do we want to live in a world where the critical infrastructure of, of high quality information is subject to profit motive? And I, this is where, you know, this is where I think the BBC, the, 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 the one period in which the BBC is a little bit weird is around the royals, right? So it does stuff where it's very, you tune in when like the queen dies and it's like very, very odd. Um, and that's the one time that you really do see like, okay, there's a state, this is a state broadcaster, right? Yeah. But for the most part, when it's covering stories, like what you basically see is like the funding is state, but like they are savaging the government on the airwaves regularly. And I think that is something that, you know, it's a, it's a nice, healthy medium. You don't want the state to dictate editorial decisions ever, but you do want the state to provide stable funding, I think, for at least some journalism to happen because we have to recognize that it is critical infrastructure. If the information pipelines in democracies break, the society breaks. And the U.S., I think, is like the perfect test case of this. I mean, you're seeing, I watch this as an American living in the U.K., like I despair for my home country. I mean, it's utterly broken. And it's broken in ways that are very dangerous for the world. And I think it's almost exclusively down to the information pipelines. People believe things that are not true. And they and this is not a, a small sliver of the population. It's large chunks of the world, um, large chunks of the population in the United States that are delusional about reality. And that's you know, really, really dangerous for democracy because those people decide the, the, the future. So you say, do we want to turn over choices to people who don't understand basic reality well yeah that's the nature of democracy but it only works if you know the the crackpots and and the conspiracists are a fringe point of the population they're not any longer right i mean like there there was a poll uh, a quarter of the u.s population believes that january 6th was set up by fbi agents Right. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's just utterly crazy. And it's but that's a quarter of the voting population. That's so. the population of the UK. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tens of millions of people. So it's yeah, it's a very scary thing. And I think we do need to reevaluate what is critical infrastructure. And I think information definitely fits. the. I love that. Such a radical idea that 
the state media should be treated like bridges and roads and electricity and so forth. That's amazing. Well, there's uh, lots of different ways of doing it. It doesn't have to be state media, but I do. I think the idea that we need to be able to have good quality information for the public, whether that's private or not, okay. as long as... As long you just as move the, away from the profit infrastructure. Exactly. I mean, it could be private companies that are subsidized by the state. I, I, I don't really care. All I want is for them. I, I don't want editors to decide what they cover based on what is going to generate clicks. I think that is a very dangerous model to go down. And I think we're actually, we're there partly. I think that a lot of media outlets are, are completely dependent on these um, these metrics, which are not the same as what is good as for society. There's a mismatch between them. All right, let's do these last three really quickly. They're just shooting from the hip. It's not a big discussion or anything. Who are the authors you most admire? Well, my favorite author of all time is uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who writes fiction, but it's it's fiction that's informed by ideas that are, I think are very, very adjacent to everything that I think about in nonfiction with Fluke and so on. Um, it's really funny reading him because... You know, he, he's he's not like an academic at all. He wasn't an academic or anything like that. His 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 novels are totally informed by chaos theory, evolutionary biology, questions about physics and time. Uh, if you're looking to get into Vonnegut, by the way, most people get into him via Slaughterhouse Five, which actually, personally, it's, it's I mean, it's it's an epic piece of literature. It's one of my least favorite Vonnegut works. Um, my recommendations are Cat's Cradle and Sirens of Titan. Uh, they're by far my two favorite novels. They're amazing, and they are totally informed by some of these ideas. Galapagos, one of his other books, it's a lesson on evolutionary biology, and it's it's really really cool. Um, in nonfiction, I'll say one of the things that I, <laughs> one of my other favorite authors is probably you know you'll think that I'm going far away from my sort of intellectual field, but just Bill Bryson, I really like. Um, he's he's a tra- he started as a travel writer, writes a lot of nonfiction stuff. The thing, the thing that I admire about him, and I think it's something that has really influenced my outlook on my own writing, is that I just have read every Bill Bryson book, and it's not, it doesn't matter what it's about. Yeah. It's just like, it's going to be interesting. And I think that's the kind of stuff that I aspire to when I write books is to say, just trust me, right? Trust me, and I will guide you into something that's interesting. It's totally, you know, my last book's about power. This book's about chance. They're totally different realms. But I am hoping that I can retain readers because I'm 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 going to try like Bill Bryson does not to waste your time with stuff that's boring, um, and so or not thought through. And and even though he's a travel writer, he's he's got a great book called The Short History of Nearly Everything, which is the most readable history of science that I think exists. So yeah, it's very very good. It's funny how many authors, um, specifically who I've spoken to, have mentioned Bill Bryson. Good on him. He's just a very good writer. I mean, that's the, the, you think about writing as a craft, right? I mean, it's like it is a craft. It's something where um, you get better at it over time the more you practice it. And I just I read his writing. I'm like, this guy is just very, very good at writing. And uh, it's wonderful. What is the country you're most bullish on? Bullish in the sense of it's going to, you know, become more... You, th- you think it's got a great future ahead of it? Uh, I'm going to give... The country that should have the greatest future, which may not be an accurate prediction, I don't think it will be an accurate prediction, is Madagascar. Um, I, it, it's one of the poorest countries in the world, um, but I, I, I'm going to answer it in this question because I've been to Madagascar, I think, nine times, and uh, it's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. 90% of the plants and animals that exist there only exist in Madagascar because of evolutionary diversion. It's, it's, it's a completely unique place. You walk through the rainforest, it looks like Jurassic Park, right? I mean, it's like enormous ferns and all this crazy stuff. The lemurs are super cool. It is held back by broken politics. 
And it's the poster child for the argument that if the system gets fixed politically, the money will flow. It has natural resources. It has oil and mining wealth, all sorts of things. But it's ecotourism is where it should be. I mean, but it's not stable, right? And because there's coups regularly, it's poor. It's got a broken infrastructure in some ways. Uh, I hope, beyond hope, that in 50 years, this is like the new, you know, Bali or wherever that like, it is such a cool country. And so few people go to it because of the volatility. Um, but yeah, if you can get to Madagascar and you're up for an adventure, uh, you know, things will not go according to plan, <laughs> but you will see lemurs and you will see some really cool stuff. And it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing place that I hope really develops. At the moment, you know, it's top 10 poorest countries in the world. It's very, very depressing. But I, I hope that in 50 years, it will turn around. And I think you open up Corruptible with an anecdote in Madagascar, right? So you spent a bit of time there. I've, yeah, I think in aggregate, I've been there for, I don't know, eight months of my life, something like that. Um, but, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary place, totally, totally broken <laughs> in, lots of, in lots of very depressing ways. But, yeah, it's such a cool country. Um, bizarre because there's no, you know, there's almost no modern life there other than the Internet. I mean, the, there's no, the last time I was there, there were no movie theaters. Right, it was very, very poor, um, and most of the most of the buildings in the capital are from the colonial period, so it's a it is a snapshot from a different era. All the um, all the taxis in Madagascar are these; uh, they're basically the jettisoned remnants of 1960s France. So um, all the cars that people are driving in the taxis and so on. It's just like this: you've traveled back in time, but it's a it's an amazing, amazing place. That's sad to hear. No movie theaters. I mean, like that's such a great indication of how low um you've progressed yeah well and i mean you know, the tallest i think the tallest building in madagascar is a, a hotel built by the french which is like oh, 20 man. stories that's that's shocking yeah. did you ever read tim butcher's blood river i haven't no okay highly recommend it because it's this it this is set in the congo right so it's a different country but i imagine very similar lessons but he uh tells this incredible journey as he walks across the country of a um, what's he say of a country undeveloping it's not even staying where it is it's literally going backwards well Madagascar is the only country in the world that has gotten poorer since 1960 without being in conflict wow so it's I mean it's the pinnacle of depressing right it's like literally had no wars and it's just it's it's significantly poorer than it was you know in, in 1960 and do you subscribe to the why nations fail argument that it's all systems yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a huge array of factors. I mean, I, you know, the nature of fluke suggests that there are places where the system can be broken and you can still get a lucky outcome. I mean, you know, one of the one of the classic examples of this that I think about is, um, you know, like Singapore, where um, Singapore is a is a place where if you were to you know travel back to 1950s Singapore, you've got like lots of opium dens, massive corruption. It's sort of this backwater of the world economy. I mean, today it's one of the most cutting edge, richest countries uh, in the world, extremely effective governance, et cetera. I mean, it's got, you know, a very authoritarian streak, but it has, in terms of economic growth and stability, and so it's very, very high. And, you know, they had a leader who basically changed the system very, very quickly. And why did that happen? I don't know. I mean, Singapore, maybe they got lucky with someone who was willing to take on some of these problems of corruption and other places didn't. So I, you know, I, I, I subscribe to the idea that institutions are highly important in, in um, structuring human behavior. 
But I don't think that if you design the right institution, that the world will auto, that the country will automatically become prosperous. That's not the way it is. It's an interaction. Everything in the world is an interaction between systems and individuals. And I mean this like not just for humans, but you know everything, right? For animals, etc. The ecosystem and the individual creatures that inhabit it are is an interaction and they affect each other so the behavior of an individual affects the system and the system affects the behavior of the individual and so the, this the world of social research is trying to understand the interplay of those things i think political science and to some extent uh, economics because of modeling overplay the role of systems precisely because it's impossible to model individuals so you know you you, you can't model what donald trump can do you can model what the american presidency will do I think that's why a lot of U.S. politics models have been super wrong, because they haven't taken into account the the individual erraticism of personality types and so on, which which Trump embodies very, 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 very well. Each incremental moment is met with literally impos- uh, um, an infinite set of possibilities. Yeah. How can you predict it? You just cannot. Yeah, and I think you know the, the unpredictability is tied to this this hubris of modeling, right? I mean, I think this is the aspect where. <laughs> Um, political science just gave economics as well just gave up predicting a lot and the academic economics right there's forecasts made by various organizations but like a lot of academic economics papers don't make predictions Uh, and that is you know potentially a recognition of their inability to do so but it's also something where I think we need to gravitate more towards pragmatic policy policy driven research that can have uh, you know a better a sense of, of how we can make adjustments to the world. And blind modeling is not, not necessarily a way to do it. I think more experimentation, as I said before, is going to be a huge, huge part of this. And forgive me if this is opening it back up because I know we agreed to finish. Don't worry. But um, there's a chapter in the book about the luck of the draw geographical setup of a country. Yeah. And I wanted to, uh, I made a note at the time, but why was it worthwhile to include that chapter, which could almost stand alone as its own essay in the book? Yeah, so this is basically, uh, I call this, this chapter is called The Lottery of Earth. And it's, it's more about how geography and geology shape human trajectories, not just of our societies, but of our individual lives. And the reason I put it in the book is because, you know, believe it or not, if you look at an economics model or a political science model, the world is basically uniform in those models. Uh, what I mean by that is that you don't model geographic or geological factors at all. You might include a variable, right? So you might include, does this country have significant oil wealth, yes or no? But like, there's no landscape. And the thing that's so odd about that is that obvious, I mean, it's so intuitively obvious to all of us that like our landscape changes how we live, right? The way that roads are built, the way that hills are, you know, if, all these things affect societies. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's so many things that just are, are swayed by geography and our models basically ignore them. And the reason they do that is not because, you know, economists and political scientists think that they're unimportant. It's because they're so difficult to incorporate, um, with the quantitative tools that we use. And so what I'm trying to show is like, this is actually really important. I mean, there's a brilliant argument that Jared Diamond has, which I included in the chapter of the continental axis theory. And it is so, you know, just like, absolutely obvious that this is true when you think about it, but he's, you know, popularized it, um, where he says, look, it's really easy to traverse east-west because latitude and climate are correlated in a way that longitude and climate are not, right? So if you go east-west, you're very likely to stay in sort of the same kind of place. Uh, If you go north-south, very quickly things change. 
And that matters because transmission of ideas flows way faster east-west than north-south. Well, the continental axis of Eurasia is east-west. There's trade routes that are east-west, the Silk Roads, etc. Trying to go from Europe into South Africa requires not just a massive change of climate, but crossing a desert. So he's making the point that like technology flowed very, very easily from China to Europe over hundreds of years, for example, whereas it did not flow very easily from Europe to what is now South Africa. And so, you know, why is that? Well, it's just totally arbitrary. I mean, you know, the fact that there's a Sahara Desert, it, you know, had there been a slightly, you know, slight change to tectonic plates or a slight change to the way the Earth's climate developed, you wouldn't have had a desert there and maybe it would be easier to move, you know, north-south. The same is true for empires, right? Like if you develop an army that is very well suited for fighting in a certain climate, uh, then you are going to have an easier time conquering east-west. The second you go north-south and you all of a sudden end up in mountains that are full of snow and you're a, a warm-weather climate army, you're screwed, right? So when and, and basically there's a lot of work in the more recent era that has verified this, that has looked at the spread of empires, and sure enough, so many more limits on uh, north-south than on east-west spread. And I think... It's just when you think about the world that way, all of a sudden the historical patterns that we tend to, you know, oh, well, it's because, you know, Alexander the Great was amazing that when, you know, it's well, okay, part of that is probably true. Some of it is geography and some of it is, you know, battles get to, you know, we, we know this with like Napoleon going to Russia in winter or whatever. But like, I think we lose the idea about the shape of our societies. And this is where I think uh, the, the sort of, you know, institutional explanations have some very big flaws uh, in them is that they don't incorporate uh, these aspects that are hugely important, but are often unappreciated. I love that. That was uh, an amazing response. Thank you. And um, I suppose Peter Zihan and Tim Marshall, people you've uh, consumed as well. Yeah. yeah. Like the argument of the internal river system in the United States, uh, not having threats on either side of you, two massive oceans in the United Kingdom, you had this special tree, which enabled the entire naval fleet, essentially. Um, or again, back to the idea of fluke, it's randomness that got you here. Um, and it's not necessarily your brilliance that explains how you took over the world. I, I have one uh, term that was related to this that's in, in fluke. It's probably my clunkiest terms. I try, when I coin terms, I try to make them uh, less clunky than this, but I couldn't find a better way to say this. So I call it human space-time contingency. And it's basically the idea that the interaction of human society with contingent changes in you know technology, geography, all these other things create contingency in interesting ways. So like Saudi Arabia's oil did not matter for those societies until the invention of the internal combustion engine at a specific moment and the ability to harness it and the discovery of it through geology, right? So the oil was always there, but it became hugely diverting to the trajectory of Saudi Arabia because of historical accidents around technological invention and the need to harvest oil or, you know, extract oil rather through, um, you know, wars, basically. And all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia goes from being a country in which Everyone moves around by camel, and it's very, very uh, unsophisticated in its technological development to one of the richest societies in the world in like basically a blink. And that's human space-time contingency. It's like there's an interplay between the tectonic plates, the geography of the world, and then what we do and how that impacts the way that those things intersect with us. Because you know, if, if, if we decide to stop using fossil fuels, all of a sudden they will have far less effect on the trajectory of our societies, and that will be a human choice. So, you know, it's not, it's not just geography, it's the interplay between um, those factors and our choices. Absolutely unbelievable, Brian. 
thank you so much for being yeah generous with your time going over what we allotted and yeah i'm so stoked that i discovered you i don't exactly remember how i think it was probably the, the podcast first but i'm a subscriber to the Substack and so forth and so uh forgive me if i'm bothering you with lots of emails in don't the worry future no. as well. that's great thank you thank you so much it was a pleasure to be on the show cheers man